I don't know about you, but do you ever look around and say, what happened? Was there a tornado that I missed? Because it doesn't seem like we're in Kansas anymore, Toto. For example, why do so many people think that Christians are the bad guys now? In a recent survey, less than a third of Americans said that they trust the church. A third. But this is just part of a bigger problem. The anti-Christian sentiment, the division and anger in America, the activists who are calling evil good and good evil, the increasing mental health issues, especially among teens. All of these are worldview issues at their core. Worldview matters. You're going to hear a lot of that from me today. We as Christians, with our coherent and tested biblical worldview, have a message of personal forgiveness, transformation, salvation, and hope through Jesus Christ that no other worldview offers. We just need to live faithfully and be prepared to share that message in the right and gentle way to this skeptical and resistant culture. Today, I'm hoping to expand a little bit on the idea of worldviews that Tim has already mentioned and share some of the information that has strengthened my faith and given me courage to speak about cultural issues in a way that I hope honors God and is consistent with Scripture. The world needs that now more than ever. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Let your light shine before people so they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. My prayer today and every day is that more of us will be called to deepen their relationship with the Lord, to embrace a consistent biblical worldview, and then to reach out to others in ways that will draw more lost souls to Christ. Christians are a minority in our Western culture right now. Would you be surprised to hear that less than 6%, 6% of Americans who identify as Christians hold a traditional biblical worldview? I know it surprised me, and truth be told, made me a bit disheartened. But even if almost everyone else believes that God either doesn't exist or is irrelevant, does that make scripture and Christianity any less true? No. Why? Can you tell me what do we know about objective truth? Anybody? <laughs> it's exactly. Some things are always true. Absolute truth is true whether anyone believes it or not. No matter what you've heard, two plus two still equals four. So are God and his word eternally true? Yes. Psalm 119, 160 says, all your words are true, all your righteous laws are eternal. If we really believe this and truly love others, we should want to share the one real truth that will make the most difference in their lives. So believers should not be disheartened, and we do not have to remain uninformed, neutral, or allow ourselves to be silenced by the majority. We are to let Jesus' light shine through us before men, no matter the pressure or the cost. If we look back at the salt of the earth passage, in its context in scripture, remember what immediately precedes it. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Here's a very short clip from the Chosen TV series in which Jesus, the actor, Jesus, explains to Matthew the meaning of salt of the earth. I think the writers and actors in this scene nailed it and made several good points. What does the word the salt of the earth even mean? Salt preserves meat from corruption. It slows its decay. I want my followers to be a people who hold back the evil of the world. Salt also enhances the flavor of things. I want my followers to renew the world and be part of its redemption. Salt can also be mixed with honey and rubbed on the skin for maladies. I want my people to participate in the healing of the world, not its destruction. Isn't that good? I love the chosen. <laughs> As Jesus' followers, we are called to shine a light on evil and ideologies that are harmful to the world, to call people to the Lord and his salvation, and to help build a culture that honors God, to help Jesus in the restoration of his kingdom on earth, not only carrying out the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 to make disciples and baptize all the nations, but also God's cultural mandate or commission. I know all of you have probably heard of the Great, of the great Commission, but have you heard of the Cultural Commission? Is this new to you? Okay. All right. It's laid out in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. And then a few verses on, God blessed the man and the woman and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take dominion over it. In this and other passages, God gives mankind the responsibility to act as his stewards on earth, to fill the earth, not just with progeny, but also with culture and all the things that go along with the culture living according to his will. As Augustine explains in The City of God, Two rival cities exist that are shaped by opposing loves and that work toward different ends. The earthly city, the city of man, is created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. Think of Babylon, Sodom and Gomorrah, or parts of some modern Western cities today. The heavenly city, on the other hand, was created by the love of God, it glories in the Lord and focuses on the good of all. We Christians are to be citizens of the city of God while living in the city of man. Think of Jonah eventually delivering God's message to Nineveh, or Nehemiah returning to build the wall and renew the faith in Jerusalem. Or a more modern example, maybe the work of the Roanoke Rescue Mission. We are called to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors so that they might become our brothers, build a culture on earth that honors God, and strive toward the ideal of the city of God. Instead of thinking that Christians are outnumbered in America, we should focus on all the opportunities we have to impact the world in positive ways and lead others to Christ. Oh, wrong one. Sorry. There. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so I'm guessing that these memes and photos haven't been shown in a lot of uh, Sunday school classes at CHS, uh, but you've probably seen them almost everywhere else. Don't worry. I'm not going to go rogue on you. I'm only using them to make a point. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I have seen a lot of changes in America, some good and some bad. But in the last two decades in particular, it seems like the change is at warp speed for all you Star Trek fans out there. I'm one too. 
This hit home for me and my husband, Stephen, he's over here, <laughs> when we decided about 10 years ago, after much prayer, to leave a church that we really loved over sermons and publicly stated beliefs that were shifting away from scriptural truth. Then a relative who was very dear to us asked us to attend and celebrate his gay marriage. And we were both very conflicted over how to show that we care for our cousin and yet honor God's definition of marriage in scripture. The wedding was called off before we had to make that difficult decision. But more and more issues seemed to pop up all around us that I just didn't know how to answer. Maybe you find yourself in a similar spot, confused about all these new cultural issues. Maybe you've heard words like tolerance, love, truth, or justice, all biblical words, but used in ways that sound just a little bit off. It's like the words are the same, but people are using different dictionaries now. Maybe you've heard friends, public figures, or your HR department even, discussing the ideas in this slide in positive ways. And you stay silent because you don't want to offend anyone or start an argument or get fired. Maybe this hits close to home to you too, and you have a family member who has shared that they identify as LGBTQ. What is the proper response, the godly response, Show of hands, please, if you don't mind sharing, how many of you have experienced something like this? Okay. So, oh, one more thing. And if you don't have, you don't have to answer this publicly, but do you think that you could address these cultural questions with love and truth? And maybe more important, do you know how to prepare and equip your grandchildren and children to deal with the cultural pressures to move away from God's authority. A biblical worldview can offer peace and clarity on how to address these controversial issues and can strengthen your own faith in the process. I know it really has mine. Okay. So let's back up and look at the basics of worldviews. A worldview is like a lens. Think of it like eyeglasses or contact lenses that help to bring the world around us into focus. It's a framework that helps us to make sense out of what we see and experience. Everyone has a worldview, whether it's apparent to them or not. At the core of a complete worldview are our foundational convictions about all the basic questions that almost all humans ask at some point in their lives. The sum of these beliefs and ideas can give direction and meaning to life and be the basis for one's decisions and actions. Okay. A worldview often operates in the background without much consideration or reflection. As a result, few people's worldview is cohesive, complete, or even logical, even among people who call themselves Christians. Sadly, we usually form our worldview in the wrong order. We rarely stop to examine them, so we often up, end up with jumbled mix of ideas. This is the syncretism that Tim has mentioned before. Syncretism is like an a la carte menu version of a worldview. We choose little bits of ideas from different sources based on our own desires, plus peer and social pressure from our friends, from social media, from public figures, government officials, and so-called experts, and end up with ideas that just don't go together and can cause us a gut issue. From these ideas, we form a jumble of conflicting values and then a whole syncretistic worldview. This worldview is unstable, just like the inverted pyramid in the slide. Shifting as cultural ideas shift, causing internal conflict for the individual that can then ripple out in negative ways to the family, the community, and the wider culture. Please consider this later when you go home and ask yourself, does this describe me? Do I need to re-examine my worldviews and be more intentional about how I formed my values? 
Worldviews have a tremendous impact on every decision or action in our lives. So the best way to form a worldview is to make a conscious effort to understand and form a cohesive and consistent worldview. If we can form our worldview as depicted on the right of the screen, we'll have a firmer and a sounder foundation. We should start with a complete worldview at the base, one that rationally answers all of life's fundamental questions, one that is founded on tested, unchanging ideas, and one that matches the reality that we experience in our lives and in the world. Our values will then arise from this stable foundation. And based on our values, we then know what behaviors and desires are appropriate or acceptable. Will we be able to evaluate, and oh, we will be able to evaluate new trends or popular ideas and culture and accept or reject them using our solid worldview. And depending on the worldview we choose, we may have a more positive impact on those around us. Ah, uh, that didn't work there. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Okay, so what comprises a complete worldview? To be complete, it must answer all of life's basic questions about origins, meaning, morality, identity, and destiny. In the interest of time, I'm going to restrict these points to just two main complete worldviews. Believe me, there are lots of them. Um, but we're going to focus on the biblical and the secular today. Uh, those are the predominant ones in America right now. And most of us are familiar with the biblical worldview, so I'm just going to hit the highlights on that view today. In the category of origins, we all ask, where did I come from? How did the universe, life on earth, and humans come into being? What we think about origins and what is real sets the tone for who or what has authority in our world and in our lives. Authority is critical in any worldview. It's been said that the most impactful words ever written come from Genesis, first chapter, first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Belief in an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, supernatural creator changes everything. Because Christians believe God created everything from nothing, Everything we are and all we have come from him. Thus, he is the ultimate authority for our lives. Our focus is then upward and outward rather than inward toward ourselves. In fact, the only firm foundation for our lives and our worldview comes through the wisdom of the unchanging God of the Bible. God's truth is everlasting for all generations, as it tells us in Psalm 119. Now let's turn to the secular view of origins. Most secularists believe that the universe and everything in it, including man, evolved through natural random processes. In this view, there is either no God or we can't know if he exists. There is probably no supernatural, so it no, has no real authority over our lives either. No heaven or hell, no miracles, no Satan, no demons. Man is free to have authority over his own life, at least to the extent which the community or the government allows. Other life questions involve meaning. Does life, and my life in particular, have meaning or purpose? If yes, then what I choose to do with my life matters in a greater context. If we believe in God, then we need to discover what choices, work, actions would please him. If mankind's past, present, and future are part of God's grand plan and meta-narrative, then each of us have an important part to play under God's guidance. Our lives have value and meaning granted by God. Conversely, for secularists, the authority of why we live falls to humans to decide. The authority of the self. 
with no God to provide meaning to our lives, then everything we do is either meaningless or purposeless, as in the atheist view, or it only has meaning if we construct some arbitrary, ever-changing meaning for it. To paraphrase G.K. Chesterton, God made man to worship him. Without God, man will worship anything. Man will make an idol of self, stuff, state, sex, science, power, or worldly causes, whatever makes him happy at that moment. But in reality, most worldly pleasures eventually disappoint and can't fill the void in the human spirit. Without an external source of meaning, many secularists eventually become disillusioned, leading to depression and a sense of hopelessness. Then there's the question of morals. Is there right and wrong, good and evil? In the biblical worldview, yes, of course. God is holy and good, and he is the moral lawgiver. He determines what is righteous or sinful in his sight. He has written his unchanging and objectively true moral law, not only in scripture, but on every human heart. And in the Christian view, evil exists too, in the human heart, in Satan and his demons, and in the natural world. Another big question in this morals category is what is wrong with the world? It sure looks broken. The biblical worldview accounts for universal human experience in, of both good and evil better than any other worldview. The meta-narrative of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, tells the full story. In the biblical worldview, we experience our own sin and need for a transcendent savior. We witness the sacrificial nature of God's love and we are called to follow in Christ's footsteps to outward focus service out of love for him. Now, what do secularists believe about morals? For them, there is no moral lawgiver, no natural law written on every human heart, no ultimate foundation for objective truth or ethics, and no reason to believe good and evil even exist. Morals are relative then to the individual. So moral standards are set first by the self, then if necessary by the public consensus, by the government, and any laws that might govern morals may be based on strictly utilitarian reasons. If secularists have any beliefs about why the world is broken, they can only suggest survival of the fittest power struggles of oppressors versus victim, greed, or some version of cosmic karma. Now let's move on to identity. What is humanity's role and value in the world? Who am I? Are we our work, our talents, our role in a family, our sexual preference or gender, our passion for something? For Christians, humans are God's beloved ultimate creation his children, created in God's image, male and female, made for a loving, personal relationship with God and others. God's love for us and our identity as God's image bearers provides a firm and absolute foundation for the high value placed on human life and the dignity, rights, and equality of all humans. In secularism, a human is just another chance development of evolution, or as the uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals, PETA says, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Humans are separated from animals only by degree, not kind. So there is no strong case to be made for the value of human life, dignity, rights, or equality. With the rise in this worldview, it's not surprising then to see increases in the number of late-term abortions, in human trafficking, and in assisted suicide options for people with non-terminal illnesses. For secularists, just as in the meaning category, 
Every person is his own expert on his identity. And identity is subject to changing feelings. So nothing is firm or set. A very confusing and unsettling ideology to introduce to children. Beliefs about identity are also critical for decisions about today's concepts of sex, gender, marriage, family, and children. Are our gender identities determined by God to match our physical bodies, or can we change them on a whim? Are marriages designed by God in a particular way between one male and one female to become one flesh? to serve as a stable foundation for raising children and teaching them in the way they should go? Or should man and government be able to redefine marriage in whatever way they choose? Are children blessings from God to the parents, or are they just a way to continue our species? Who then has authority over parental rights? Spoiler alert on these last issues. More and more studies are confirming that the biblical view of human identity, marriage, family, and children are what's best, not only for individuals, but for society as well. But are you starting to see why a worldview is so important? And finally, what is man's destiny? What happens after we die? For Christians, there's hope of life after death eternally with God, retaining our individual identity. Our faith and salvation take away the sting of death and make us long for heaven. Most secularists believe that we live one life on earth and die, and that's it. Or for some, their spirit may merge with some cosmic oneness, but their individual identity is lost. There is no life beyond death, No justice or balancing of scales, only nothingness. If this one life is all a person has, you can see why many focus on living this life to the fullest rather than choosing self-sacrifice and self-control. Even secularists will admit that this view offers a very pessimistic and hopeless view of human destiny. No wonder mental health issues have uh, risen. Okay, so how important is a worldview? We've gotten a glimpse in the last couple of minutes of how important it can be, but let's look at two more extreme examples from history. Some of the world's most horrific and most praiseworthy events were based on decades or centuries, in some cases, of philosophical theories and ideas, otherwise known as worldviews. In the picture on the left, we see Jewish prisoners in a Nazi concentration camp shower, a.k.a. gas chamber. Hitler and the Nazi party didn't come out of nowhere. Hitler was influenced by and arose after decades of highly touted secularist theories on the inferiority of other races and the science of eugenics in the Western world. The master race concept in Germany, Japan, and Italy, and a desire for power led to the global devastation of World War II and the Holocaust. An estimated 70 to 85 million dead when you count all the people that died of famine or disease. All because of a very flawed worldview. But a nobler worldview can make the world a better place. On the right, we see a painting of William Wilberforce. Have any of you heard of him? Okay. Uh, For those of you who haven't, he was a member of British Parliament from 1784 to 1812. In 1785, he became an evangelical Christian, which led to a lifelong concern for human rights and cultural reform. He became a leading abolitionist and headed the parliamentary campaign against the British slave trade for 20 years until the passage of the Slave Trade Act of 1807 and eventually the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, 30 years almost before our Civil War. He faced significant opposition, but he persevered and he also championed many important educational, religious, and cultural causes. Wilberforce famously said, 
A private faith that does not act in the faith of oppression is no faith at all. It was critical that William Wilberforce, his faith was well grounded in a sound biblical worldview and a deep trust and obedience to the Lord. You can see from these examples why worldview matters. As the president of the Colson Center, John Stone Street, often says, ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. Ideas and actions based on a sound biblical worldview can help Jesus in the restoration of a hurting world and point us toward that city of God. Okay, so let's take a deeper look at the predominant worldview in America and much of the West, secularism. It's much easier to be aware of cultural ideas that might be diluting your biblical worldview and also how to address conflict with others if you understand the assumptions at the heart of the matter. Basically, secular just means irreligious or to not be committed to the authority of a religion or its gods. Secularism is an umbrella worldview for many basic assumptions. It includes atheism and agnosticism, but what might be less obvious is that people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious can also be considered secular. 74% of Americans say they talk to a god or a higher power, but the vast majority don't view the Bible or any other religious text or God as authoritative for their lives. They believe in self-rule only. Sadly, secularism has become the cultural air in which we live and breathe, so it's impossible to get away from secular ideas and their consequences, and it's fundamentally at odds with a biblical worldview. Okay, one more. Let's try that. There we go. Okay. What underlies modern secular message and beliefs? As I'm talking about these, think about the scriptures that tell us the exact opposite of these views. Secularists believe that, number one, subjective feelings are the ultimate guide. Feelings are the most reliable guide to what you should do in life. Remember that old phrase, if it feels good, do it. You are your own self-sufficient expert on reality and identity. A second belief is happiness is the ultimate goal. This fits right in with a, a view rooted in self-authority and subjective feelings. Remember that catchy song, kind of annoying after a while, from years ago, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> um, in this view, the only measure of life success, purpose, and meaning is whether a person has been in touch with their feelings enough to know and pursue what would make them happiest. But there's often little consideration of any wider consequences for others who might be affected by their choices. Number three, the only sin in secular culture is the act of judging others. Questioning the path or the nature of another's choices, or failing to affirm their chosen path is considered an attack on their identity. That's judgmental in their eyes and equated with hate. This is why anyone who questions another's choices, even in a gentle and respectful way, is often condemned as a bigot, an oppressor, or some kind of phobe. This belief is part of what underlies the basis for the modern terms that I'm sure you've all heard, safe spaces, trigger warnings, cancel culture, and the whole words or violence idea. You can see why freedom of speech and freedom of religion are coming under attack now in America, because it's a secular America. And the fourth principle, secularists are at best ambiguous about God. So God is the ultimate guess. Any exclusive claim to truth or any confidence that God exists or has authority over our lives is out of the question. It's fine to believe that all roads lead to God 
or that all religions are equally true, but Christianity's exclusive claim, as Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's considered narrow-minded and hateful. Some even go so far as to say that evangelism is harmful to the rest of society. So it would be in the best interest of the world to eradicate the superstition of religion altogether. Starting to see why Christians are considered the bad guys now? Uh, uh, let's see. Okay. So how do we talk about these worldview issues with others? Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, serves as a wonderful example of how to approach others about your faith and cultural beliefs, especially when you're the minority in a culture. If you have your Bibles and want to open them, you can turn them to Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. The context for this passage is that this is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas had preached the good news everywhere and experienced opposition and hardship. Athens was a proud culture, but it was in decline from its former greatness. Many Athenians spent much of their time discussing philosophy, so many of them wanted to hear Paul's new ideas. Athens also had many pagan gods and temples, but their worship deified the power of nature and human attributes, more like the powerful but flawed demigods you see in the Marvel comics. You know, think of Thor and Loki, <laughs> rather than the holy, good, and all-powerful God of the Bible. Now, what can we learn from Paul in these verses? As a first step before any conversation, we should be well-grounded in God's word and prayer for those we are trying to reach. We know from many of his letters that Paul was constantly in prayer for unbelievers and new followers in the churches that he planted. Plus, he meditated on Jesus' teachings. Just like Paul, God's presence should permeate all that we say and do. Next, we must first show that we care about those to whom we're talking. Asking questions is a good way to show genuine interest in their lives and in what they think. Just as Paul probably asked questions wherever he went to learn about the culture before engaging them about the gospel. In Athens, Paul noticed all the temples and idols for sale in the street, and the Spirit stirred his heart to bring the good news to those lost people in the midst of false gods. So like Paul, we must have open eyes and broken hearts. We should always try to start with common ground. Paul met people where they were. In Athens, it was their belief in worshiping gods. Paul had noticed a temple to an unknown god, and he used this fact to tell them that his unknown god was in fact the one true god and creator of all things. He also quoted two Greek poets who had said that humans are God's offspring. So he related this to the idea of man being created in God's image, and those who believe in him are his children. Paul faced opposition and ridicule in Athens, but he still preached as boldly as ever to whomever would listen. He expected that many would reject him, but he still spoke out. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we shouldn't be afraid, offended, or speak in anger, but instead continue to show love and compassion. And we must be wise in our discussions. Take advantage of the opportunities presented, just as Paul did, and discern with the help of the Holy Spirit when to speak and when to listen. Our goal should never be to win a debate or an argument, but rather to point the soul in need of salvation to Christ. We should always point to Jesus, 
to the personal relationship, the love and grace and the forgiveness. No other worldview offers this type of personal relationship with God, but that is what every human needs. Like Paul, remember, never compromise on God's truth. However, one difference between us and Paul, our situations and calling may be different, uh, aside from obvious differences <laughs> between us and Paul. Paul had a mission to reach as many people as possible and share the whole gospel message in a limited amount of time. But most of us are probably trying to reach out to neighbors, family, or coworkers. We can usually take the time to build trust before we tackle difficult topics like sin or sexuality. It might be best to think about trying to leave a pebble in the person's shoe, something that will challenge their thoughts later rather than overwhelming them with too much information in any one meeting. Think of the intent of Jesus' parables to keep people thinking long after the meeting is over. Remember to let others know that you care and respect them as a fellow human being, even if disagreements pop up. And always try to keep the lines of communication open. Sometimes that may not be possible, but keep praying for them. Okay. Sorry, my clicker's not doing real well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Finally, in, uh, yeah, we're almost to the end. Finally, in order to be salt and light for this hurting world, we must put some effort into cultivating a Christian mind. One of many passages in the New Testament that speaks to this is Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus was always ready with a story or a defense, as we must be. There's a book written by a protege of C.S. Lewis. His name is Henry Blay Myers. I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of his last name, but how should a Christian think? And it says, we need to think and read about our scripture and faith and also about modern culture and current events so that we may be defenders of the faith equipped to engage culture about ideas that are counter to scriptural beliefs and stand for biblical values and ideals, <clears throat> ideals in all areas of culture. Have you ever heard of Abraham Kuyper? Okay. Kuyper lived in the Netherlands in the late 1800s and he held many different positions including pastor and prime minister. One of his famous quotes is, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human experience over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He believed that Christians should be active in promoting Christian values in all spheres of human influence and endeavor. So, I charge you today with being creators of culture whatever your gifts and calling may be, to be ready to strive toward that city of God in whatever way you can. Christians have a powerful message, not only the eternal truth and good news of the gospel, but also a complete worldview, one that answers all of life's big questions in a comprehensive way. People are in desperate need of that now, so how can we not share it? Uh, okay, yes, <laughs> the prayer worked. <laughs> so where to go from here? And before I forget, there are two handouts that did not get passed out that uh, tell you all the points I went over in these last two slides. So feel free to come and get those before you leave. But where to go from here? If you suspect that some secular ideas have crept into your biblical worldview, I'd suggest that you go to Summit Ministries, which is summit.org, and they actually have an individual worldview checklist or checkup um, that will test your biblical worldview. And you get a private score at the end. And that way, um, you'll know if there's some things that maybe you need to uh, be in prayer, ask for discernment from the Holy Spirit uh, to get rid of some possible false or syncretistic beliefs. 
and then study scripture and other trusted sources for clarity. And while you're at summit.org, they have some great resources available on their site. Um, they train in biblical worldview and they have a lot of good videos, books. Um, there's even a free downloadable worldview comparison chart if worldviews are your thing. Another good and trusted source for biblical worldview is the Colson Center, colsoncenter.org. Uh, I'm kind of partial to this one. It taught me a lot. I'd suggest you sign up for the daily free breakpoint email from the Colson Center. Um, these are brief, less than five-minute reads that address very current topics in the news from a biblical worldview perspective. And they will help you think with godly discernment about a wide array of topics in mo modern culture. This daily dose of biblical worldview can keep the syncretism from creeping into your worldview. Also, on that same site, colsoncenter.org, there are some great little five to seven minute videos called, What Would You Say? And each of these videos, you can find them under the podcast tab, and each of these videos are on different topics, and they give you just three or four points to remember so that you can be, make a conversation and have points at your fingertips to address with another person. Um, and there are even some good videos that offer more tips on how to have these tough worldview conversations in a loving, truthful, gentle way. Um, both of these sites also have bookstores from trusted authors. So if you're a reader, there's a lot of sources that if you find it there, you can trust it, that it's from a biblical worldview. So um, thank you for listening, and are there questions? <laughs> Okay, I've, I've stunned them into silence. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, they're great ways that um, you can have a conversation and say, you know, I believe in this. Can you tell me what you believe? And you can kind of highlight in gentle ways without being too confrontational. Um, you know, well, get, get, you know, find that pebble in the shoe. Does this worldview give you peace and comfort? You know, something that you can then have further conversation about. Did that answer your question? Okay. <laughs> yes. One of the slides mentioned the book, Making Sense of Our World. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, Bill Brown, who wrote the book. <laughs> Bill Brown, who wrote the book, is one of the head senior Colson fellows, and that was one of the many books we had to read for the training program. Uh, it's a good book if you're really interested in worldview. Um, it is very in-depth. If you want something a little lighter, um, especially if you have a family, you have young kids, John Stone Street wrote a great book called, I think it's A Practical Guide to Culture. It has a rowboat on the front. And it goes through, in very short little chapters, all the controversial issues right now and um, how you can address them and especially how you can teach your children about them and prepare them and equip them. So it's a great book. Yeah. And if there's certain topics like LGBTQ issues, um, there's some really good books on all of those two listed on the, um, on the colsoncenter.org. Sure. So you've given us an overview, which is yes. a, lot, a lot of information. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Okay, um, ongoing sessions are, I would spend a few, probably four sessions, really solidifying your biblical worldview using the biblical meta-narrative as a framework. I mean, there's enough in Genesis that sets up our worldview that it takes a whole session. 
Um, and then you just, you go from there. And then you would, I would um, go through a little bit more of worldviews so you know like Wiccan and paganism and a few other worldviews that I didn't cover today. They're in the minority, but some of them are on the rise. And you may run into someone who's into the Wiccan or whatever. Um, and then lastly, I would have a class each on the really controversial topics and how to address them. So we would go into um, gay marriage and homosexuality and transgenderism and all that stuff and how, you know, what are some points you can address in that. And, wait, and, and the history behind it, because there's some fascinating history of how we got here. And one of, uh, there's a great new book out by Nancy Piercy called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And I heard a podcast on it the other day, and it would be a great book for like a men's group to do. It's really good. Do you have a follow-up question? Yes, yeah, of course. For decades, I thought, oh, this is great for, you know, Orthodox and Presbyterians and theologues who really like this stuff. But we're cool. We're young like you. We're cool. We don't need all that. Uh, what's the cost of not having a biblical worldview? The cost... Yeah, the cost is that they're coming out and saying it now. They're coming after our children to recruit them. And we really need to prepare and equip them. And there are studies that have shown that if children are equipped, if they learn about biblical worldview within a family, you know, supportive setting, and they're also asked to kind of learn how to defend their faith, so that when they go off to college and some professor tells them that evolution has been proven and you can't believe in God anymore and all that, um, and all the other issues that come up, that they're prepared. And that generally, um, those children don't end up giving up on God. Amen. Yeah. So, yeah, it is really important. And it's also important because of the laws that are being passed in this country. And if you want to hold on to your parental rights... Uh, if you want to fight abortion and other things that secularists are pushing, um, you need to be aware enough of worldview to be able to address that and offer an alternative, offer a better alternative. Okay? Thank you. Thanks. Um, don't forget the handouts if you're interested in any, because uh, the web pages and stuff.